Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication from the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which is currently working its way through Parliament. We'll be joined by Emmanuel Andrews, who is the Policy and Campaigns Manager at the human rights charity Liberty, to discuss what the bill will mean for charities. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got a good boy learning a whole new language. uh, And we've also got a very impressive world record attempt, a world record smashed. uh, So that's to look forward to. But first, Rebecca, have you ever been on a protest march? I have. I've been on a couple. I've been on uh, the tuition fees protest happened when I was at uni. Uh, So uh, I've been on that one. Um, I've been on a few pro-refugee ones and the Women's March just after Donald Trump was appointed. That was that was fantastic. That was a really just a really good feeling for a march. Um, So, yeah, but always like my protest stories, uh, my own protest stories are pretty tame. Um, You know, never been arrested or anything like that. How about you? Yeah, um, I have done a few marches in my time. Also went on the student fees march, which feels like years and years ago now. It's because it was. It was more than a decade ago. No, enough of that. (laughs) Um, I've done some various EU marches. Um, Yeah, I've I've, I've done a fair bit, but also, you know, I, I don't really have any memorable anecdotes to take from them. But one one kind of good story that I do have is uh, my friend Hannah, way, way back in 2011, um, for the uh, royal wedding of Kate of William and Kate uh, in London, she accidentally got arrested for being dressed as a zombie bride. Wrong fancy dress, wrong time. Uh, so a friend of hers runs a blog dedicated to zombies, or did at the time, and uh, they were based in Norwich. She was living in, in London. And so he'd heard that there was going to be a zombie flash mob in London on the day of the royal wedding. And I think there was going to be a protest organised by a group called Queer Resistance that was kind of, they were going to have like a sort of zombie wedding in Soho Square, kind of pointing out that, you know, a lot of money is not being spent on LGBT healthcare at the same time as all of this money is being spent on on a a massive wedding, a massive royal wedding. Um, So this friend said, could you go down and cover it for my blog? Now, Hannah is not one to miss out on an opportunity for fancy dress, so she gets herself decked up. She had a white bridesmaid's dress and a uh, she got some um, some uh, lip stain and sort of, you know, smeared it all over her face like blood and takes her camera and a notebook and decides she's going to go down and cover this. She gets to Soho Square and it ended up being a bit of a damp squib. Not that many people turned up. There were about four other people. And there are all the other members of kind of the, the mainstream press are there because uh, they've heard about it as well. And so she suddenly finds herself getting photographed and, and and kind of being the story, having kind of gone along to to kind of informally cover it. And it kind of was a bit of a washout. It was a bit quiet. So after a couple of hours, she and about four other zombies head to Starbucks on Oxford Street to get a coffee. And uh, a group of police turn up and stop and search them and find nothing on them and kind of just, you know, hang around for a bit and then arrest them because they they look like they might be about to cause trouble. In Starbucks? Uh, in Starbucks, yeah. They, well, they've been taken out of Starbucks now uh, by the police. But yeah, they pointed out we were in Starbucks having a coffee and then we were about to go home because we're bored. Um, but yes, they, she gets arrested and actually spends the night um, in a holding cell um, over this. So it turns out there was another protest that was going on about five miles away and or several miles away and the um, the organizers of that had actually been preemptively arrested the night before and there was a single flyer for this for this protest and on it it said don't forget to bring your maggot confetti 
Um, and there was this idea that Hannah and her friends had been secretly harboring maggots ready to throw them at the royal couple, mm. which they were like, yes, but we don't have any maggots on us. Uh, so how how could we how could we be about to throw? And also they were in Soho Square, which obviously is quite a long way from where anything to do with the wedding was kicking off. Um, and, you know, they, they've had to sort of fought their way to the front uh, to, to do this. So yeah, so um, she spent the nights in prison and she took the... Um, she, basically, you know, went to court and was sort of found not guilty, but then sort of took it to the European Court of Human Rights, kind of saying, this shouldn't have happened. Uh, we shouldn't have been arrested because we looked like we might disturb the peace while dressed as a zombie three miles from where anything was actually going on. Um, and uh, eventually it, it went to the European Court of Human Rights. And I think they would have won it, except that about a month before, police arrested some football hooligans in Spain. So there was a precedent of, you know, these guys look like they might kick off and that was right. So there is a precedent there. She um, has, my, my friend now has her name on a ruling in the Court of Human Rights because she decided to wear some fancy dress one day. That, it, 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 it's fairly shocking. I mean, she will have a royal wedding story that probably not many other people will be able to yeah. tell. Um, but again, just goes to show quite how wrong people can get things like this. Yes. It seems that protest laws in this country already quite strict. And now there is a bill afoot that would make them even more restricted. The Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill is a huge piece of legislation which is currently working its way through Parliament. And there are a few key aspects of this bill which have drawn criticism from a range of civil society organisations as well as members of the public. Part three of the bill would introduce measures which would curb people's right to protest, including serious disruption prevention orders, uh, which have been dubbed protest banning orders by opponents because they would effectively forbid participation in certain forms of protest. It also included a noise trigger amendment which would allow police to impose conditions on protests based on noise or their potential to cause disruption and would make it an offence to have been seen to have interfered with national infrastructure such as road and air travel. Another part of the bill has also been widely condemned, as it would criminalise trespass, threatening the lifestyle and rights of gypsy, roma and traveller communities. There are also provisions to expand police stop and search powers. So a group of organisations, including the human rights charity Liberty, the International Development Umbrella Body Bond, Quakers in Britain, Friends of the Earth and Friends, Families and Travellers have formed the Police Bill Alliance to campaign against the bill. Last week, the House of Lords successfully pushed back against 14 amendments and succeeded in removing them from the bill. These included the amendments around protest banning orders, the noise amendments, stop and search and the introduction of the infrastructure offence. As we're recording on Wednesday, um, yesterday the bill received its third reading in Parliament and all eyes are now on the government to see how it responds to its defeat in the House of Lords. Here to tell us more about the bill and what impact it could have on charities and other civil society groups is Emmanuel Andrews, Policy and Campaigns Manager at the human rights charity Liberty. So hi Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi Emily, thanks so much for having me. So um, to kick off, can you just tell us a bit about why this alliance sees the bill as such a draconian set of measures? Absolutely. So protest is one of the key ways we can speak about injustices that happen, no matter what the issue is. And we all want to be able to stand up for power, stand up to power and, and for what we believe in. And everyone should be able to express dissent. And, and particularly in a democracy, protest is a key way that we can have our voices heard. But that is exactly what 
this bill challenges. And that's exactly what those in power want to take away from us. So whether that be giving the police greater powers to decide which protests can take place, where they take place and for how long, creating buffer zones around parliament or making causing serious annoyance punishable by up to 10 years in prison, you know, a whole host of measures. The bill effectively is gagging protesters. And I think, you know, we know that marginalised communities will be unfairly targeted and disproportionately affected. You know, not only are are marginalised communities already over-policed and over-surveilled, which makes their presence at protests precarious already, such that if you're a person of colour or a migrant or gypsy Roma traveller person or you're homeless, you're more likely to be impacted by harsher sentences and expanded police powers, as well as the inequality that already exists within the criminal justice system. But there also are just fewer ways to make your voices heard. Um, so, you know, not everybody can vote. Um, and with with new proposals in the elections bill, for example, that's going to be even more narrowed. So protest is a key way that everybody can make their voices heard. And um, yeah, again, I'm sure we'll go into it. But we already know that police manage protests poorly. Um, and w- when we look at the broader political landscape that has historically silenced and suppressed dissent of certain communities, this the, all the proposals in the bill aren't new. Um, And I think that's just something I really want to emphasise that although this is an unprecedented example of of protests being stifled, it is part of a history of protest movements being um, suppressed um, and particularly marginalised communities being um, impacted by by state violence and, and state suppression. And it's really interesting that you've kind of outlined a lot of reasons why for any citizen and for civil society generally, these these ideas are really concerning. These measures are really, really concerning. And as you say, part of a history. Obviously, charities and other civil society organisations themselves often campaign for reforms they think will benefit their cause areas. So what impact do you think this bill could have on charity campaigning specifically? Yeah, so, I mean, it goes back to the the place that protest has in the wider ecosystem of organising and movement building. So protest is often a way people get introduced to a cause and introduced to an issue. So I think the fact that protest is going to be so deeply impacted by proposals like this will have a massive chilling effect on organising and movement building and the ways that charities can actually, you know, encourage people to support the things they're working on. And I think of some really pertinent examples such as, you know, LGBT plus rights in this country, if you think about the ways in which the conversation around LGBT plus equality was introduced um, and given lots of support, it was through protest mostly. And and that played a massive part in actually normalising the very, you know, the very existence of LGBT plus people. Um, So from protest kiss-ins with loved ones to filing wedding wedding license applications to demand equal marriage or staging die-ins to campaign against the government's inaction on HIV and AIDS, you know, to merely existing as LGBT plus people. Were it not for the tireless campaigning of activists who took part in visible and vocal actions, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today. And 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 the and the crucial thing as well to say is that not only would we not be where we are today with certain issues and, and the fact that the, the bill and proposals against protests could roll back those hard-won rights, but it also prevents us, you know, being able to campaign on issues in the future, right? If we can't protest, how are we supposed to continue standing up for injustices um, across the country? And I think it's also worth noting you know, with with the impact on charities is, again, this climate that is all happening in. And I remember when we first started protesting against the bill, loads of organisations were really fearful of joining 
um, the, you know, the coalition and alliances we had built because they were really worried that they would come under pressure from uh, because of their charitable purposes and under charity law. And I think this is the result also of some of the really high profile investigations into charities that have happened really recently. So when you look at the Runnymede Trust, for example, who were, you know, holding the government to account for its sewer report and, you know, criticising the complete denial of, of the existence of racism in this country, or even the National Trust mm. were investigated by the Charity Commission because they had done a massive reckoning on on their, you know, some of their, their the land that they held and the link between slavery and colonialism. They were getting criticised um, for not sticking to their legal duties and responsibilities as trustees. And that has a, that had a massive chilling effect on charities' confidence in speaking truth to power. I think you have so perfectly there kind of illustrated the really rich history of campaigning, um, which is is really closely bound in with charity history. And you, you spoke then to so many key points that we've seen in history. And it is also just such an important part of being able to raise awareness about cause areas and about, you know, very specific issues. And, you know, you were talking um, about, you know, LGBT rights protests. And one of my favourite historical protests of all time, you know, took place in 1989. And it was conducted by uh, the London branch of ACT UP, the global coalition of kind of protests around the AIDS crisis when that was happening. And um, in 1989, I remember um, there was a real crisis in, in prisons in the UK because HIV was rife um, within kind of these institutions and um, people who were incarcerated were not being allowed access to contraceptives. And I remember act up activists gathered around the walls of Pentonville Prison and they threw condoms over the sides of the walls. They're just chucking contraceptives in. There are so many kind of touchstone moments that you can you know, point to in charity history. Um, what have you been doing so far with your peers to campaign against these new measures? Oh, where to start? I mean, I wish that we could say that we've been chucking condoms at prisons. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's one. I'm going to note that down. Hey, that's my manager. <laughs> but no, I, I think I think I'll start, I guess, by saying that this has been a really cross sector movement. And it's, you know, I think really, really important that despite the fact that the government has really tr been trying to divide us all through this bill um, and rush through so many different draconian proposals because of the sheer size and breadth, we've really stood up against that. And and one, you know, really pertinent example, um, again, a, an LGBT plus example is the fact that the government has introduced really important and overdue reforms with respect to pardons for historical same-sex convictions. And I think that's a really, it, it's a tactic that the government is using to throw in you know, positive reforms alongside dangerous and oppressive new powers. It's a really cynical ploy to confuse debate around the bill and make it harder politically for MPs and peers to reject it wholesale, but also like plays games with different organisations and different charities who then are put in the position of being like, well, this is something we've been campaigning for for decades and we've finally got an opportunity to have it debated and, you know, bring forward some really positive proposals um but i think what we've done really well is is actually like calling that out and and showing that this is actually the executive trying to to tear up communities and movements and is a you know a real direct response to the amount of solidarity that we saw with black lives matter for example to extinction rebellion to all of the incredible movements of solidarity that have happened over the past couple of years but in really kind of tangible terms like the ways that 
the police, police bill alliance and different organizations have been campaigning against the bill the the huge movement on the streets has been absolutely incredible and that's you know in no small part due to grassroots organizations like sisters on cut for example and kill the bill they we would not no would not be in in the place we are today if it were not for them and i think the fact that they you know sisters on cut in particular were so like so quickly mobilized in response to the murder of Sarah Everard was was so crucial because it really really drew attention to the fact that this is this ha- this is happening in that landscape of the government slowly but surely cutting down on the right to protest and narrowing our avenues for for holding it to account and you know throughout the pandemic we've seen how the government has been has been trying to do that and you know it was unlawfully banning protests during the pandemic it was pursuing terror charges against protesters one thing that the the police bill alliance and and groups like liberty have been really taking forward is a parliamentary advocacy that's something that we again has been so crucial especially when we've seen the government introduce reforms you know by the back door and at the 11th hour um a lot of that work is often invisibilized in part because uh the the parliamentary system in this country is so archaic and it's so difficult to understand whether that be working with different parliamentarians to make sure that their opposition to the bill is put on the record to working with them to table attempted you know more mitigating amendments to the bill so you know we've had particular avenues where we've been trying of course to to kill the bill wholesale but that's proven particularly difficult in you know within the parliamentary system as we have it so trying to trying to introduce mitigating amendments that might you know take some of the sharper edges off is something that we can only do through a parliamentary process so that has been key other things we've been doing is you know petitions we've we've had a petition signed by almost um, a million members of the public. We've been writing open letters from different sectors, um, trying to really showcase what the impact on protests will have on, on different charities and different organisations. Um, we've created videos showcasing the importance of protests for members of the public. So whether that be, you know, grieving families trying to um, fight for justice for their loved ones to disabled activists coming together, um, locking on on the street to protest against injustices against disabled people. We've really tried to emphasise that despite what the government and, you know, a a lot of the media have been saying about protest um, and the fact that it's allegedly done by lefty activists and stuff, that actually protest is so important for all of us, wherever you come from, no matter what the issue is, you know, no matter whether it's it's a left wing issue or not, protest is one of the few ways that we can hold government to account and crucially one of the few ways that we can come together as members of a community. So as you say, there's been a tremendous amount of work going on in so many different avenues in so many different ways and and just huge opposition, which is is incredibly impressive and, and, and brilliant. Where are we at the moment? And we've had this uh, last week, we had um, a number of amendments were defeated in the House of Lords. Could they be reintroduced? And yeah, what what is the bill in its current form and what's the situation? So we had a really big week the other day, which was really exciting. Um, we welcomed and really celebrated some crucial victories that that, that took place. Um, I will go into this as well, but it's it's important to say that whilst we, we need space to like celebrate um and and kind of rejoice we also need space to mourn and and you know this whilst we have won some protests some crucial protest um, amendments 
this bill is still having a massive impact on Gypsy Roma traveller communities. It has a massive impact on black and brown communities as well through proposals to further criminalise people. So, yeah, just wanted to, to say that at the forefront that there are some things we can we can celebrate, but there are also some, you know, we, this this is just the beginning. But on the positive stuff, um, there were the, the proposals that the government put forward at the 11th hour, such as the creation of protest banning orders that I mentioned, to new locking on offences, have essentially been consigned to history, or at least with respect to this bill in particular, because the government can't reintroduce them, they can't retable them. Mm. Then there were also powers in the original bill. So when the bill was first introduced, such as you know, some of the sweeping powers to restrict protests on the basis of noise. Some of those were defeated, but the government can reintroduce them. They can retable them at the Commons. So there is this kind of, yeah, this tense moment where some of the things are fantastic. They can't be reintroduced into this bill, but some things the government can come back and be like, no, 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 like, don't get too excited. Um, so it's really important that we continue to mobilise MPs at this stage. Um, the negative side of this, I guess, is that we do suspect that the government will try and reintroduce some of the things that they can't reintroduce into this bill into another bill completely it's worth saying that we're so prepared for that we've got we've got so much research about why these powers are completely heinous and like we built so much awareness around why this bill is going to have such a, a damning impact on people's right to protest that I think they're really going to have a difficult time if, if they dare to introduce them in, in a separate bill. And as you have said, there are going to be specific communities that will be particularly impacted by measures which go beyond this broad right to protest. Um, you've spoken very eloquently to those, which means, you know, there are going to be additional um, concerns for charities working in specific cause areas. Um, is there anything further you want to kind of add to those to raise awareness of those and, and what can be done to sort of support these specific communities? Yeah, thank you. I think the um, what we're really seeing is, is this worrying trend by the government to utilise criminalisation as an answer to everything. So every kind of socioeconomic issue that we could think of, the government's urge is to say, let's just criminalise it, you know? So whether that be, um, we, you know, one of the positive amendments that we saw um, introduced was the repeal of the Vagrancy Act. So that is a, a, a law that criminalises people for rough sleeping. Um, and that's really, that's a really fantastic welcoming repeal that we hope survives the Commons. But it's worth saying that even if that does get repealed, if that, if that law gets repealed, the government will no doubt still look for other ways to criminalise poverty essentially and this is something we're seeing with 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 the criminalization of trespass for example rather than trying to actually respond to the real issue of the fact that gypsy roma and traveler people don't have stopping sites that they can um they can reside on um that there, there is a crisis in adequate stopping spaces and and land for gypsy roma traveler people to continue their way of life that the government is just looking to criminalize that that activity um similarly with the creation of the serious violence duty um in part two of the bill this will really have an impact on uh on organizations and charities that work uh with with communities uh such as like young people's charities for example and and the 
what we're seeing is the extension of reach of the police into services such as the NHS and schools. Similarly, with the introduction of serious violence reduction orders, which is a new, effectively a new, um, a new power that will enable certain people to be stopped and searched without suspicion whenever they're in a public place. Um, we're just, it, it's just, a, it's just a common tactic that we're seeing time and time again of criminalising uh, behaviour instead of actually responding to the socioeconomic issues that these that these things are arising from. So I suppose one thing that that charities can do is re- just really see those urges for what they are. Um, we, you know, we saw it with with the response to violence against women as well, for example. And the Vogue sector came out and said, like, this bill is not in our name. Like, don't use, do not use um, this bill to 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 allegedly bring in proposals that would make women safer. Like, criminalising perpetrators is not the is not the only way or you know indeed the way to deal with the the real issue of violence against women like was this around the proposals to make misogyny a hate crime yeah and i mean there's so many different proposals um such as you know one thing that was really concerning that actually relates to the serious violence duty is the proposal um to enable the police to work more closely with frontline organizations and and one of the things that was that Vogue sector organisations were saying is the more that the police creep into frontline services, the less people are going to be willing to actually come and visit our services. If you're, for example, if you're someone who's worried about their immigration status and you're, you know, you're experiencing domestic violence, if you know that the police are going to be working with service providers, you're not going to come and access those services. So, you know, I think that's just it's one of the it's just again, it's just a knee jerk reaction that the government seems to just be really happy to take is going down a criminalizing path instead of actually getting to the root causes of many of these issues. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one thing that I would say is that charities can really see those see those for what they are. Amazing. And yeah, on on that note, you've mentioned before that charities perhaps may have felt a little nervous initially about kind of coming out really in support of the alliance and and, and in support of, of opposition to the bill. What can charities be doing now to support the work you're doing? So I think one of the crucial things that, you know, that charities need to do is understand that this bill you know, whether we defeat some of the protest proposals or not, it's part of a wider attack on accountability that the government is waging. So whether that be through changes to the Human Rights Act or, you know, ultimately plans to scrap it completely to changes to the ways in which we hold it to account through judicial review. There are so many different ways that will implicate charities and will implicate the issues that they're advocating for that we need to really be we need to be standing up against in really practical ways uh, that charities can come together on the police bill in particular. It's, you know, sharing the petition, getting your getting your um, supporters to sign it. Um, I think also if you have any local factions, like really highlighting the fact that protest is a localised issue as well as a kind of wider bigger issue part of of mobilizing too so you know there are amazing localized actions that are taking place across the country how can you encourage people to speak to their local mp um how can you also engage with local media and really fight against the narrative that that protest is something that just you know people in london do for example it's actually something that you know empowers all of us fantastic well emmanuel thank you so much for your time today it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you Thanks so much for having me.
So each week we are bringing you a good news bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. And what have you got to kick us off, Emily? Well, uh, it's an old adage that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but an eight-year-old Staffordshire bull terrier called Rocco is determined to be an exception to this rule. Uh, Rocco currently lives at an RSPCA animal centre in Swansea after his previous owners sadly passed away. And shortly after he arrived at the centre, staff discovered that he had suffered an ear infection that left him completely deaf. They have since spent the last few months teaching him sign language. Oh, that's so cute. Yes, exactly. So Rocco has learned to read hand signals and body language as a way of understanding what people are asking him. Uh, For example, uh, thumbs up means very good boy. Which he is. Staff at the RSPCA Centre now say this incredibly resilient and very lovable good boy is looking for a new home. So if you are interested in taking on a lovely dog who understands sign language, do drop them a line. That would be lovely. That would be, and then drop us a line. If a listener on the podcast, if, if a listener of the podcast adopts Rocco, like we want to hear about it, please. Please tell us that. Please, please let us know. Rebecca, what's your good news story? So uh, my good news story is that three British women, including one with incurable cancer, have broken the world record for rowing across the Atlantic. And they've raised around 100, or they're hoping to raise around £100,000 for charity in the process. Amazing. Right. Uh, So, um, and they've completely smashed this record, by the way. So Kat Cordiner, who has metatastic ovarian cancer, and her teammates, Abby Johnston and Charlotte Irving, have completed the 3,000 mile crossing from La Gomera in the Canary Islands to English Harbour on the island of Antigua in 42 days, seven hours and 17 minutes, smashing the previous record by seven whole days. They're a week quicker than anybody else, which is, yeah. So speedy. Right? Like so impressive. Um, And the trio are raising money for Cancer Research UK, Macmillan Cancer Support and the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. So Kat was diagnosed with cervical cancer kind of completely by chance. She was having her eggs harvested in March 2019. uh, And after two surgeries, all seemed well. But then in June 2020, she began experiencing stomach pains and knew her cancer was back. Um, Having already signed up to do this at Atlantic Row, she thought that, you know, another round of treatment would scupper her chance of taking part. But she continued to train through chemotherapy until doctors found a growth on her heart and she was advised to stop exercising immediately. But following intensive drug treatment and radiotherapy to treat the cancer, she underwent invasive heart surgery to remove the rest of the growth. And six months after that, she got back in the boat and set off on the 12th of December with her two teammates on a 25-foot boat called Dolly Parton the Dolly Parton, which I love, uh, to tackle the world's second largest ocean. Uh, So she said, the doctors have told me I don't have decades, I have years, so I really want to make the most of them. I don't want to muck around doing stuff that doesn't matter. I want to do things that are challenging and fun. Um, So the donations are still pouring in, but the trio are hoping to reach £100,000 to be shared between the three cancer charities. And obviously we will pop links in the show notes so people can uh, donate to that as well. Congratulations to all three of them for breaking uh, an incredible world record by a really extraordinary stretch and best of luck to them on their ongoing campaign. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Emmanuel Andrews, and our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. Bye.